the panel on RNZ National. We have Julia Hartley-Moore and Phil O'Reilly with us today. Wallace Chapman here now uh, due to a serious crash. State Highway 80 is now closed. This is State Highway 80, Lake Pukaki, Canterbury. So avoid the area uh, or delay your travel at this time. And the Terrace Tunnel, Wellington, that'll be closed from 9 tonight till 5.30am tomorrow for tunnel maintenance. So uh, just a heads up on that. This first, the government promises to reduce class sizes for years 4 to 8 by 1 by the start of 2025. An extra 320 teachers were needed for that move. It would see classes in year 4 to 8 uh, right up until high school shift from 29 students per teacher to 28 students per teacher by 2025 at a cost of $106 million over five years. Education Minister Jantanetti said she wanted to lower class sizes as she was concerned by downward trends in numeracy and literacy skills across schools. So I thought, well, let's talk to a teacher. And with us is a teacher of 27 years standing, going strong. Melanie, kia ora, lovely to have you on. Kia ora, Wallace, it's nice to be here. So you would know as anybody, as a teacher of decades, class size to be decreased by one, Melanie. Will that make any difference? It wasn't a very courageous um, announcement at all today. Uh, Teachers are really disappointed. It's not going to make much of a real difference to any teacher's workload or well-being and definitely not much to any student's learning journey. 27 years. The president of Teachers Union, NZDI, Mark Potter, said it was the first time since 1996 that the teacher-to-pupil ratio had been reduced. So uh, 27 years no class reduction. That's an extraordinary long time, isn't it? Pretty long time. I mean, we were promised in the early 2000s by the then Labour government that there would be a move on class sizes, and we did see uh, for junior classes uh, 1 to 15, but it's very rare to even get that. I spoke to a teacher today who has a year 2, 3 class, and she's got 24 kids in her class, uh, most intermediates which are year 7 and 8, they will average 1 to 32. Um, really, this this is just a little tinkering around the edges. It just uh, allows maybe a school that's got a board-funded teacher um, who's trying to reduce um, class sizes to have that teacher paid for, or it just justifies the fact that they've uh, taken a teacher out of a classroom to be a walking DP and spread those kids around the other rest of the classes. They might be able to replace that step that, that um, walking person, but right. it's not really going to do much. Okay, yeah, buy one. Now, Phil and Julie will have thoughts and questions on this, but before we go to them, Melanie, just give us, a, <clears throat> give us an inkling of, as a teacher, what it means to be the head of a classroom of 29 kids. Walk us through that day. Uh, you've, it's, you know, can you imagine um, having 20 million um, internet tabs open. That's what it's like. You're constantly dealing with people, um, young people who don't really, some of them don't know how to regulate themselves, who just want your attention then and now, um, who um, haven't listened, even though you've probably explained it five times. Um, or, or it's just you're constantly dealing with young people who are constantly wanting your attention. And you're thinking about the next thing you've got to do, what you haven't done, 
am I ready for this? Um, there's nothing like trying to prepare an art activity while um, the kids are trying to get into the art activity. But the, you know, you, it, it's 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 really impossible to explain. But yeah. maybe herding cats is the best example. <laughs> Julia, not Julia Hartley Moore. Well, I think look, even as a parent with a couple of children, three children, you know what that's like. I mean, to have mm. twenty nine. It's just, it would be impossible with the way kids process things and think, think. I thought this was a joke when I actually saw this, Wallace, because I do remember, I think it was back in 2014 that the Labour government said that they were going to reduce, it was going to be one teacher to 26 children, students. I don't um, think it was, it, it was, it was 2012, was it National, uh, Melanie? It was 2012 issue, wasn't it? Yeah. In 2012, what um, Hekia proposed doing, Hekia Parata proposed doing at the time was to increase uh, class sizes and then she said she'd put the money that she saved in teachers into professional learning development for teachers. Um, unfortunately, um, it turned out that the worst schools affected would be the intermediate schools because it would mean losing a lot of their technology teachers. And um, parents didn't like that. <laughs> so John Key had to quickly shelf that one. Yeah, that was a very big issue uh, back then, uh, was it not? All right, Phil O'Reilly. Yeah, I've been studying this for quite a while, uh, ever since Business New Zealand days, and it turns out it's a bit of an evidence-free zone, this whole area. Um, and I've just got a piece of research in my... I've just pulled one of the many pieces of research out, which actually say that smaller class sizes have a bit of an impact on quality, on, on learning outcomes. But there's a number of research studies, including some by the OECD, that demonstrates it's got no impact at all. That, in fact, class sizes have no impact on learning outcomes. And this, this particular study, for example, says you'd be much better, basically, spending it on tutoring, early child care program, early childhood programs, or improving teacher quality. So if you had $106 million to spend over five years, I wouldn't spend it on a pointless attempt to be popular with parents because that's the issue with this stuff it's very popular with parents right it must be this must be good this must work well actually it turns out it doesn't as much as doing these other things so if i had 106 million to spend over five years i'd put it into improving teacher quality and training and making sure that the the kids who are really at risk of falling off the edge were looked after much more successfully than they are today. We're going to come back to this tomorrow. What is the actual evidence? But Melanie, as a teacher of 27 years who stood in front of these classes, what would you say to Phil? Yeah, I've heard that John Hattie research before, and I think it's a load of crock. Personally, I've had small class sizes and I've had large class sizes. And I have been, I I can tell you that I am a more effective teacher the smaller the amount of class, um, the smaller the amount of students in class. You have to also think that in the 20 years since Hattie did that research, we have a lot more issues in our classes nowadays than what we did back then. The number of kids we've got with neurodiversity that isn't being supported um, in any way, shape or form by any extra paraprofessionals or experts coming in to assist teachers is just phenomenal. Then you've got the mainstreaming of all students. And the amount of and those kids are not fully funded. They might say that they're fully funded, but it doesn't actually get fully funded. So we've got a lot of issues in our schools as far as funding goes and class sizes and support for teachers. You wonder why we're losing teachers hand over fist at the moment. They're burning out because of the workload. And the higher the number of kids in the class, the bigger the workload. Just to be clear, this is numerous studies across numerous school systems across many years. It's not just one study. I'll just make that point. Yeah, right. I, so, I hear you, but I, I, you know, experience tells me otherwise. 
And can I just say this too, as as someone who struggled at school, who's a dyslexic, that you remember the good teachers. Those are the, the kids remember a good teacher, and I I know my good teachers. I still remember their names today. Yeah, indeed. Now, in terms of another aspect of this, uh, and we will come back to this in terms of evidence-based, um, Melanie, the, the, small re- this, the small reduction, reducing it by one, it'll cost $100 million. Can you see from that perspective why the government is actually, <laughs> or governments, shy away from this issue? The sheer cost of it is something else. Absolutely, and it's one of the the big problems. Is you know, you, the government, uh, the opposition claims that you know there's been five billion dollars or something extra spent in education over the last five years, and a huge chunk of that has been in teacher salaries and in uh, pay equity settlements to support staff um, because we've all had pay rises and everything, and that absolutely had to happen. However. Um, there is going to be a bulge of primary students moving into the secondary system. So there is some advantage there in that we're going to end up with an excess amount of primary teachers, apparently. And I've had this discussion with Chris Hipkins myself last year where we talked this through because, of course, one of our claims at the moment in the primary teacher negotiation is for more classroom release time to help with the workload. And he was like, well, where are we going to get the teachers? And it's like, well, there are teachers out there who have left the profession. They will come back if you improve the workload. Right. Now, uh, can I ask you finally, Melanie, what has been the biggest change in education in 27 years? If you were, going to, if you were to go back to your fledgling career in 1996, compare that to now, what's changed? Probably the amount of devices that we have in the classroom. You know, it was when we got first got teacher laptops given to us in the early two thousands, we were told it was to it would help reduce our workload. It hasn't reduced our workload. We we just expected to be more available to parents and students than ever before. And it's like um I just you're you're always uh, an email away or a Zoom call away from anybody and we're just expected to do so much more because we've got these devices personally as as teachers, but also the workload that devices bring in classrooms with students who uh, do all sorts of weird and wonderful, crazy things with their devices that teachers end up having to sort out. Great to have you on, Melanie. It's a real pleasure. Kia ora. Uh, Thank you for your time. That's Melanie, uh, a a teacher of uh, 27 years, 18 past four. A lot of response on this. That was the one one thing on, on a personal note. Um, before we go into the next topic, uh, Phil, you know, we asked ourselves as, as a whānau, what's the class size? Because we do want that attention. What about you, Phil? If, if there was a class of 50, it wouldn't matter to you. Uh, to, to, put your, to, put your, to put your kid in school, it, would, it just wouldn't matter. No, well, the point is the class sizes are, you, the, the, the evidence suggests, and this is evidence over many, many years now, lots and lots of evidence suggests that, yes, there is a positive impact. But if you were going to spend the money, you would actually spend it on targeting, for example, kids who are, who are struggling. You would spend it on really improving, radically improving teacher quality, which is the point right. that, that Julie's I making got, about yeah. that. Yeah, get the idea. So there's other ways so of spending the money. So you wouldn't ask that question yourself. You wouldn't ask um, the principal at the meeting, what are the class sizes? No. Because to you, it wouldn't matter. No, well, I'd be asking, what's the, what's the teacher quality like? I'd be asking, what are you doing about okay. making sure that you've got the right the right support for the for kids? If my kid was neurodiverse or something, I'd be saying, well, what are you doing about that? That's a much more important topic okay. to me. Interesting. 19 past four, the panel on RNZ National, Phil O'Reilly 
and Julia Hartley-Moore. And to the health of our lakes, now water has been much discussed in the last fortnight, both with the Freshwater Report and the Three Waters rebrand into affordable water reform. Well, the largest ever study into our lakes found that 45% are in poor health or worse. The situation is dire in the North Island, 80% of lakes in bad health. The Lakes 380 project as it's called, is by the Cawthorne Institute and GNS Science. And with us is the Cawthorne Institute Freshwater Science, Dr Susie Wood. Kia ora, Susie. Kia ora, Wallace. Thanks very much for having me along. Pleasure. 3,800 lakes in the country and most of them poor quality. How do we... A bit of a sad story, really, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a worrisome story, for sure. So, yeah, 45% of our, our lakes are... In poor or worse conditions, so that you know means they're high in high in nutrients and algae, and, and potentially, particularly in summer, they've, they've got algal blooms, which makes them unsafe to take um, take kai from or to go swimming in. But yeah, absolutely, must we must never give up on a single lake. And I think you know it's a real it's a real call for action and a, a call for action now before before more of our lakes um, degrade. And you know I don't want to be here in, in ten years' time and t- giving you a higher number. So needless to say. Um... What struck me was the level of monitoring uh, that isn't being done. Uh, how many lakes in the country are not monitored regularly? So it's around about 5% of, of New Zealand's 3,800 lakes that we monitor. And of those lakes that we monitor, um, you know, most of them are in, in lowland, sort of highly modified landscapes. And, you know, and most of our monitoring records are only, you know, one or two decades long at best. And, yeah, so this is really challenging when we think about, you know, that, what we've got to do in the, in the years ahead because we're thinking about restoring our lakes, yet we don't know, you know, how much they've changed. And, and, that was a really, oh. and 95% of lakes aren't monitored. Why? Well, mon- monitoring is, is challenging, right? You've got to get out to these lakes and, and take samples. Um, yeah, and we're just, there's limited resources. And so it's, um, you know, yeah. we've, we've selected lakes that are highly used for recreational activities and, and various things, which, which makes sense. But it's really yeah. challenging when you're, you know, you're trying to make national scale predictions if you monitor so few lakes. Of course. Phil, let's start with you. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. This, and, I, and I'd hope we'd move moved as a country now and I, I think you I think in terms of the business community and the farming community I think many of them are there to saying we need to do both we need to make sure that we can improve uh, economic outcomes and so on but at the same time we need to improve biodiversity outcomes and, and one thing I've noticed about conversations with the business community including the rural community over the last sort of I don't know 10 years or so is that debate has moved into that kind of space because the, the other point I'd make is that lake, a lack of lake health is often the subject of a blame game, you know, you've, everybody blames the farmers. Well, actually, you know, it may not be. It may just be you not not being so good when you wash your car in the in the driveway and let it all go into the lake and so on. So, this is a responsibility for all of us. And in my sense, is the debate is now on the right side of history. We just need to now mobilise resources to get it done. Is Phil got a point there? We're blaming the farmers and the the odd person who washes his car by the lake, or is he completely off point? No, no, I agree. I agree with Phil. And one of the interesting things that we did in, in our project is we not only looked at the current health, but we also took sediment cores, so tubes of mud from the bottom of a lake, and year by year, sediments laid into a lake, and we can use a whole bunch of scientific techniques to analyse that, and we can see how and why our lakes have changed. And of, and of course, land use and agriculture use is one of the one of the big drivers, but there are there are many others. So things like the introduction of of non-native fish has had a huge impact on 
on our lakes. And Has it? Urban, urbanization, forestry, all of all of uh. these things. And so, yeah, I agree. It's it's time to move, um, you know, onto finding common solutions. And you know, we're, we're going to have to if we're going to address the, the magnitude of the challenge that we've got Gosh. ahead of us. Yeah, Julia. Well, I think more more lakes need to be tested, don't they? Because I mean. Back in my day, I grew up in lakes. I grew up swimming in lakes, and you never even gave it a thought. I don't no, know exactly. when monitoring. Sorry, Wallace? Exactly. Julia, what was the lake that was most, what well, was special to you growing up? Well, Taupo, Lake Taupo. I mean, we went down there every every sort of, and during the roar, during when the deer, you know, roar, April this time. Um, I didn't have summer holidays at the beach as much as I had <laughs> holidays now. Mm around lakes and streams and rivers and and I just grew up swimming and and you know I can't and I just wonder how you like those lakes were crystal clear they were just beautiful and um Carapiro and things like that we went fishing on so I don't know when the monitoring started and and five percent though of lakes really can we get back to that uh, Susie can we get back to the era in Aotearoa where we had the crystal lake you know you can see you used to see it in the 100 percent pure billboards perhaps not so now but can we get back to that era so yeah one of the really um, um I guess uh, astonishing or you know for someone that loves lakes like myself really disheartening things about this project was we because we look back in time and we see how our lakes have changed, we see that actually most of the change has happened in my lifetime or my parents' lifetime. And so mm-hmm. actually if we could wind back the clock now and be back in the 1950s, I would be here telling you that five, only 5 or 10% of our lakes are in poor or worse condition. And so this, this change has happened incredibly, you know, incredibly incredibly rapid and rapidly. Oh and of course now, you know, it's, it's 100 years of damage, but we've now got thousands of years, you know, ahead of us. So, well, that's... So we, we can do it. We can make we can make a difference to our lakes. We just you know. Let's put that positive. And, yeah. yeah, let's put a positive spin on actually. What quite a sad yeah. story actually because our our lakes are our tongue, aren't they? We need to protect them. But one thing you did mention, I want to bring it up that um, you mentioned working with local areas, especially rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the, the key parts of our project was that we engaged and had discussions with with all the different iwi that were affiliated with the lakes before we um, before we went out sampling. And we often um, worked with them at the lakes, and it was such an incredibly enriching experience. So learning from their you know their knowledge, their indigenous knowledge, um, and actually there you know there's many great examples of iwi leading restoration projects, lake restoration projects around um, Aotearoa. And you know for me, I think that's you know it's part of the future they're so place-based and they've got this long assist, uh, association and, and history with lakes so that's a it's been an incredibly uh, inspiring um, experience to actually even go back and share results with them and, and you know hear their aspirations for the future because yeah that's what's going to make the difference to have those motivated and, and um, communities good on you Susie pleasure to have you on the panel yeah, thank you very much. That's the Cornwall Institute freshwater scientist Susie Wood. 95% of lakes are not monitored regularly. Poor health. Uh, 27 past for the panel. Uh, now, Air New Zealand want a dialogue with you about their snack service. A new nationwide search for a selection of new snacks. They want to change things up. Thank goodness. I can't help myself as I have hated the onboard snacks for years. The ultra dry cookie, those cassava crisps, terrible stuff. So, my suggestion first before I get to the panel 
So here, here's my suggestion. What do you think about this? I know you will love it. What about a mini platter? So you've got one cocktail sausage, one pickled onion, and some nice Gruyere hard cheese with a mini lamington. You can keep your cheese. Is that a laughter I hear? Derisory <laughs> laughter. Is that a laughter? <laughs> Phil, you first on this. What is wrong with that? Well, if I, if you put down, if they put down the Chapman mini platter, a cocktail sausage, a pickled onion, and some nice Gruyere cheese with a mini lamington, wouldn't that give you a smile? Oh, I would. And imagine the damage you could do with a toothpick afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, see, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a really regular flyer with Air New Zealand, and the only time I have the snacks, because I'm looking after my weight, as you can see, I'm a svelte sort of character. Uh-huh. Uh, the only time I actually eat anything on the plane is when I've missed a breakfast, or how do I put this? I'm hungover. And the right. best hangover food on the planet, bar none, is sausage rolls. So I would do a sausage roll bonanza on the plane, particularly in the morning flights when people like me are feeling a bit sketchy. Okay. Well, easy, easy. Swap out the cocktail sausage, Could Julia. Put in, the, put in the sausage roll. You keep the pickled onion. You keep some nice Gruyere cheese, a mini lamington. What a view, Julia. Look, where's the champagne is all I ask. Um... Mm-hmm. What about healthy people? What about people like me who like to eat healthily? I never eat any food on the plane, that, on internal flights, just so you know, because There's I just can't. nothing wrong with a small sausage. But, but you know, here's the thing. What about, what about vegetarians? We don't eat sausages, yep. right? I mean, I would eat the cheese because yeah. I love cheese. Mm. The pickled onion, not, not so much. Um, and my husband would, and the lamington, he would. Um, but... What about fruit or what about some nice local dried apricots or what about something healthy? Not bad. Rather... Not bad. Yeah, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going with the dried apricots. And I'm not quite sure. The cheese. I'm it not quite sure the about cheese. the fruit. It's a little bit of a bore, isn't it? Even though I love my fruit. Um, someone here says snacks for Air New Zealand, macadamia nuts and tomato almonds, kumara crisps, a pottle of mixed olives and over-the-moon cheese with crackers. That is a very good suggestion. Uh, what about you? A glass of champagne. <laughs> okay, the the very odd glass of champagne for what is it? Uh, you, you, is it the Corowal they call it, Phil? You they know, do. they do. Yeah. Where you have your little glass of wine and your cheese with um, with mm. some crackers. Yes, it's it's lovely. It's actually a very good thing because it just lets you fill up a little bit as you're going home. So, it's a it's a thing I often do actually. Sauvignon Blanc and some cheese and crackers. Thanks very much. Nice. Yeah, mm. you can keep that. Eh? Yeah. Very good. Um, <laughs> Someone says sausage roll. Can you imagine the stink on that plane? Wouldn't it be great? Um, <laughs> pickled onions, let me just say. <laughs> you boys. Yeah, but we all love pickled onions. That's the thing. Yeah. That's the difference, isn't it? Uh, you've got the little toothpick. You put your pickled onion in, wash down with a, a cup of tea and a nice mini lemon